Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the RFP podcast, episode number 189, Relentless Forward Progress. I'm your host, Mike Ubaldini, and grateful to have everybody with us here today. Uh, interesting and honored to have uh, John LaCroix join us. Hey, John, how you doing? Good. How are you? Good, good. Could you hear me okay? I can, yeah. I hope you can hear me all right as well. Loud and clear. Sorry about the little technical difficulties. We're, we're a little low budget here. Well, that's life. <laughs> <laughs> so, so John, for, for the audience, John is the uh, owner and race director for Human Potential Running Series, the largest in Colorado and fifth largest across the country. Do I have that right, John? Yeah, that's close enough. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. And also the host and creator of Ultra Stories podcast, 15-year, I think it's a 15-year veteran of uh, ultra marathons. Yeah, that, that is correct. Yeah, I've been at it uh, a lot longer than I care to admit these days, but yeah. Well, you're still younger than I am, but uh, you've been, <laughs> in it, been in it a hell of a lot longer. And it's, I, I think that's where I kind of want to start because there's, there's a lot of questions or, or thoughts I have around ultra running. And I don't want it to make it just about ultra running because, you know, since you and I met, I think it was three years ago and we've got to see each other a few times over the years uh, up until last month or I guess back in July when I ran your, ran your race up in Colorado, I've been tuning into ultra stories. And so there's, there's definitely a story that you have outside of, outside of running and ultra stories and, and, the HPRS community, but, uh, you know, I know you start off most of your podcasts with your guests with how they got into running. Uh, yeah. so I'm going to throw that back to you and, and, you know, if you could share the story, cause you, you, you grew up on the East coast and moved to the West coast. So obviously I think you got, you started back on the East coast, right. With running. Yeah, I did. I, I started when I lived back in New Hampshire, um, I grew up in New Hampshire, lived there my whole life until I moved to Colorado in 2011. But I, I started, um, I actually got into running through peak bagging, which is the art, uh, the peak baggers would call it an art, of, uh, trying to summit all the lists on a specific, all the peaks on a specific list that you may have. And out here in Colorado, you know, it's famously, it's the 14ers. Everybody goes out and, you know, you you try to hike all the 14ers and New Hampshire has its own peak bagging list uh, called the 48 4,000 footer list. And I made a documentary film on peak bagging those 4,000 footers uh, in New Hampshire back in 2004. And while I was making the film, I wondered if anybody had hiked them the fastest and in doing and, you know, some research, I ended up finding a guy named Ted cave dog Kaiser who's one of the, he's one of the first Barkley finishers. And he actually had the speed record for the 4,000 footers of just over three days. Um, and, you know, I interviewed him and I interviewed the, at the time, the current record holder, a guy by the name of Tim Siever. I interviewed them for my movie and, and they both spoke about this thing called ultra marathon running. And I asked them, you know, what does one have to do to become an ultra marathon runner? And they said, you need to be stubborn and able to put up with some discomfort. And they both answered that same way. And neither one of them mentioned running. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I looked into it and, and decided that that's, that's what I wanted to do. That's what I wanted to be. I want to be an ultra marathon runner. And 
at the time my my girlfriend was like well you can't even run a mile (laughs) and I was like well you got to start somewhere and so that is literally where I started was learning how to run a mile nonstop Um, and that was in the fall of 2004. Hmm. What John what kind of motivated you or drove you to do the documentary uh man that was that was multifaceted you know uh not a lot of people know this but i used to be into professional wrestling Um, (laughs) i did not know that (laughs) yeah um i used to be a a huge pro wrestling fan i even went to pro wrestling school i was going to become a professional wrestler and my my best friend from high school currently wrestles for the WWE. He's on Monday Night Raw, <laughs> uh, which is very cool. Uh, he, he chased the dream and made it. And I, I went a different direction. I, I decided to leave the wrestling school and got a degree in radio, TV production and broadcasting. And as a part of that degree program, working towards my associates, I decided to kind of elevate the education I was getting by self-producing a documentary film Hmm. Uh, and and the reason I chose hiking is because it's what I went back to after I was done wrestling I decided to to go back to the mountains which is a place that you know I I had started going to with my dad you know around age 12 and then I stopped going around 18 and so um, you know it, it had been a few years and and my heart took me back to the mountains and I and I wanted to tell the story of this thing that people do that, you know, there, there hadn't ever been a documentary film about peak bagging before, and there hasn't been since. Um, So I I just really found this unique and compelling story about this unique thing that people want to do. And I I felt like it was a story worth sharing. And, you know, I had, I had, you know, 34 peaks left on my list that summer that I made the film and so I figured man you know I could make a documentary and get to just about every one of these peaks during filming and share that story with people and so that that became kind of important to me Hmm. did uh is it something that you just put out I mean did you get any any following from any type of uh uh, I guess, I don't know, I'm not familiar with maybe networks or like now we have a Netflix and you see all these documentary on Netflix. I mean, 15, 20 years ago, we didn't have that. But was there any any tool or resource that you were able to use to get out, get it out there in front of people? Uh, it was a lot of hard work. Hmm. You know, I'm my, my first trip to college was in 1999 and I failed out uh, my first year and I had a a high school guidance counselor told me I would never get a college degree. I just don't have the IQ or the grit or the, the brain capacity to, to think in those ways. And so I I was really discouraged and, and, and I listened. And Mm. so my, my first trip to college was what, what the fuck am I doing here? You know, um, nobody thinks I should be here, but maybe I don't belong here. And so, so I failed out, but, going back to school and working on that associates was, was a big deal for me. It was a stepping stone for so many things that followed in my life. And I I wasn't going to let other people's fears or opinions stop me. And so, uh, you know, producing the film, when I say I self-produced it, I mean, I, I did everything from gluing labels onto the DVDs 
and stuffing all of the artwork and inserts into all the DVD cases and all of the self-promotion and marketing to sell those DVDs online. And this was before Facebook too. So we're talking 2004, 2005. Facebook was only a thing for college kids, not for everybody. So I was in a lot of online hiker chat rooms selling my DVD to hikers in the Northeast and also, you know, setting up film showings. And so, you know, every month I'd, I'd have a number of in-person live film showings where I'd go somewhere like an Appalachian Mountain Club hut or lodging facility that they have. And I'd show the hour long film while I'm there. And then I would do a Q&A after the film and, and then sell copies of the DVD. And I ended up selling about 800 copies of that DVD just on my own, like boots on the ground, pressing the flesh, meeting people. And, and I did it solo. Um, you know, really um, something I'm actually uh, very proud of. Sure. That, uh, we were, you know, in, in five months, we raised over um, $15,000 for diabetes research. Wow. My my fiance at the time is a she you know she's a type 1 diabetic and, and and part of my going on tour with that film uh, you know a large part of the film is actually the story of her hiking with diabetes and the challenges that she faces but she still does it she can still do it. And so we use that message as a, a way to raise money for diabetes research and and get those DVDs out there and the film is actually on YouTube now it's free of charge. You can watch it in its entirety on YouTube. Just if you go to YouTube and search Sherpa John 48, the number 48, it'll, it'll show up. And uh, it's, it's so embarrassing (laughs) because it's, you know, it's not today's technology, but when I made that film, it was, it was pretty cutting edge, you know, with the graphics and everything from, for what a kid could do from the basement of his mother's house. It was pretty good. Um, I'll put that in the show notes if you're okay with it. The YouTube. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's cool. Yeah, I'm fine. Uh, I want to. I, I got. There's a couple questions I got going into that, but with peak bagging, and it's. Do you ever hear of uh, Brendan Leonard, semi rad? Did you ever hear that guy? No. So he's he's uh, he and a friend. He did a documentary on his friend doing uh, his first hundred miler. Um, mm-hmm. So he's he's out there. He's got semirad.com is his website and i got linked into him probably a few years ago but uh i i want to say it might have been around that same time 2005 2006 2007 right around there that time he wrote a book about peak bagging um Mm -hmm. and it's funny because i just read uh, read his blog last week and he was at a store after a run and he ran in to get something to drink and the book peak bagging was on a shelf he just like randomly came across this book that he wrote for somebody i forget who it was for but i don't know maybe it'd be interesting for you guys to connect at some point in time and maybe do something together on 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 peak bagging because you were the when you you mentioned it in a podcast a couple your own podcast a few weeks ago and that was the first time i had ever heard of it and then you know two weeks later or whatever it was i ran into that term again with this guy. So it's something to, something to think about, but going back to the documentary and, and what you learned, um, 
has that been, has that transferred over to starting HPRS and building HPRS and starting the podcast and promoting the things that you're doing? Yes, absolutely. Um, in, in very big ways, actually. Um, you know, and, and I'm going to be honest with you, Michael, in a way that I, I never have been publicly really about this subject. I, I thank you so much for asking the question and it's, it's, it's so important to, to answer it accurately. And, you know, as, as I just said, my, when I was in high school, my guidance counselor told me basically I would never amount to anything. <laughs> I'd never get a college degree. I'd never, if I went to college, I certainly wouldn't achieve the ultimate, you know, requiring. And, and she told me this in front of my dad. Um, because it was it was like one of those conversations to convince me to go to trade school or go to the military or whatever. And I just, you know, in getting my associate's degree, the, the whole reason I went to get that degree is I was engaged to a woman whose parents demanded more of me. And in order to marry their daughter, I would need a college degree and a job with benefits or I would never get their permission and their permission was required. So part of my, you know, acquiring that associate's degree was a stepping stone to marrying a girl. Really silly. If, uh, if, if my son ever came up to me today and told me that this was going on in his life, I'd tell him to leave the girl. <laughs> but, um, but I went to college and, you know, I became an ultra marathon runner through making that film. And it set me on a course uh, for my life that I never anticipated. I never even dreamed of. I never thought of. Um, I became an ultra runner. I knew that if I could hike all these peaks and if I could make this film and raise $15,000 in five months and sell all these DVDs, what else can I do? And so it really launched this campaign within myself of, you know, I really do think that I can do anything that I put my mind to. I really do. And for, for much of my life, my parents told me that you can do anything you put your mind to, honey. And I realized that your parents only tell you that because they're supposed to. Hmm. It's their it's their job. They don't they don't actually think or, or see that you'll actually take that to heart at the next level and go do it. I, I really believe that for most people, their parents are, you know, just you, they're giving you that hope. And I really took it to heart. Like, no, I can do anything that I put my mind to. So, you know, I, I learned how to run. I ran a mile, then two, then six, then a half marathon, then a marathon. And then I got into running 50 Ks in 2005. In 2006, I ran my first 50 milers. In 2007, I ran my first 100 milers. In 2008, I became the first person to ever run across New Hampshire at its widest points. From west to east, 125 miles nonstop, all pavement from the Vermont border to the Atlantic Ocean. And then I repeated the journey again the following year. Um, and at that time, I was now at the University of New Hampshire working towards a degree in outdoor education. I was working on my bachelor's. And so... I didn't just have one college degree. Now I'm working on number two after being told I would never get one. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, 
you know, the running across New Hampshire was actually an assignment. I had a class where my, my professor was like, everybody in the class needs to do an endurance challenge. And then you need to write about how the experience of that endurance challenge relates to a guy named John Dewey. And John Dewey wrote a book called Experience in Education. And on the list of things you can do was the Vermont 50 mile endurance run. I told my professor, I was like, well, I've, I've already done that run three times, four times. So would it be okay if I ran across New Hampshire? And he was just like, what are you asking me? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I did, you know, and I, and I wrote about it and some of my classmates came out and some of my professors joined me and I was in the Boston globe and just this journey that I was on to prove to myself that I really can do anything and to hell with anybody who ever doubts me because I'm not the person that you doubt. I will show you every time, every single time, what I'm made of, what I can do, who I really am. And that was a huge message that I was trying to also send my former in-laws who doubted that I was worthy enough for their daughter uh, a lot of what I did in my 20s was to prove to somebody else that I am worth it, that I may not make a million dollars, but I sure work hard and that's worth something. Um, and so, so that really, all of it connected, um, fed into this journey of, of ultimately my becoming a race director. And, and you know, I, I take all of my experiences throughout my life with me into the Human Potential Running Series and, and being a business owner and a race director. It all correlates from, you know, my degree in radio, TV production and broadcasting to my degree in outdoor education. I've got minors in hospitality management and recreation management. And I'm not saying these things because they're, you know, pin a rose on my nose. It's, it's not it. It's hey, because I went through and got this education, I have this wealth of experience and, and knowledge that uh, affords me the opportunity to do my job like I do. And so it's, it's not like, I'm not one of those people that loved running and decided I'm going to be a race director and, and I'll figure it out. It's, uh, I love running, I'm going to be a race director and I'm using all of these experiences of past fundraising and marketing and business and and experiential education to create what I've created. John, would you, you, you're, and that's all, they're all integral pieces, right? So do you think that, you know, the portion where you were in the mindset that you felt you believed you had to prove something to your former in-laws, I would have to think that's as integral to this journey as, as anything else. It is, you know, and, and I've come to discover over the years that just about every single ultra runner I've ever known is running ultras for a therapeutic reason. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of them who are still in denial and saying, no, I don't. I still get emails from people. They hear me say this and they're like, I think you're full of shit. And then like, but then I realized you're not and you're actually right. And this is what I'm working through. And it's, it, it is, it's a unique it, it doesn't need to be addiction. It doesn't need to be depression. It could be anything. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a loss of a loved one. Maybe it's divorce. Maybe it's my kids don't talk to me anymore. Maybe it's I have lupus or it, man, the, the list is endless of the reasons why people run 
in these events and, and mine are, are not unique compared to everybody else's. It's just, I had to prove my work ethic. I had to prove what I can accomplish. John, do you think uh, you, you had mentioned, you know, you, you did the documentary, you, 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 you were, you spent a lot of time hiking in, in the mountains with your, with your dad as a kid and doing, yeah. doing the documentary took you back to that, that spot. Uh, you know, for me, at, at some point we could sit down and I could share you that journey that I have. I, and you hit the nail on the head. Cause when I go out to the mountains, when I'm doing the trail runs or ultra marathons, it's very therapeutic. It's very healing. It's very cleansing. Is, is there any correlation to, you know, the relationship and those experience and memories you had with your dad as a kid that they came up or come up or drove you while you were going on this ultra journey as well, or this, this, this journey through the mountains or this running journey. Yeah. Some, some is my dad. Most of it's my grandfather, actually. I am. And to answer your question, my dad ran in the hundredth running of the Boston marathon. Also not a runner trained for it. I think he ran like a five hour Boston marathon. (laughs) Um, but while he was training for that, he was in great shape. And we went to go do one of our peaks on the list that we had. And that was Mount Eisenhower in New Hampshire's presidential range. And in the parking lot that morning, my dad was like, you want to see how fast we can do it in? And I was like, yeah, you know, I'm like 12 years old. Yeah, let's do it. And I'll never forget chasing my dad up that mountain, just bounding over logs and under you know, blowdowns and, and just running up and down this mountain. Uh, and that's how we bagged that mountain. And it's probably the best shape I've ever seen my dad in in his whole life. And I don't think he even knows today the profound impact that first trail run of my life, which was mm. with him, on that mountain has um, really, uh, you know, it's applicable to everything. Um, my, my grandfather though, uh, he was my best friend and around the same time in my, in that, you know, 12 years old, my grandfather had a major stroke and he never walked again and he ended up in a wheelchair and in order for him to come home from, you know, the, the therapeutic facility that he was in, where he learned how to eat again, he learned how to walk, to talk again. You know, he never did learn how to walk, but for him to come home for good, he needed a caretaker. And so at 13 years old, I subscribed to becoming my grandfather's caretaker. And for the next, God, must have been four or five years, I took care of my grandfather. Every day after school, I'd go to his house. I kept the garden going. I did all the yard work. I did most of the housework. I helped my grandmother with the laundry. I bathed my grandfather every night before I put him to bed. I irrigated his catheter. You know, I, I washed his privates. If he had to go to the bathroom and he couldn't, I'd put a glove on and reach up in there and we call it finger of fate <laughs> and just, you know, pull, pull that shit out for him. You know, like I, I don't know many 13, 14 year olds that would do that for, for their grandparent, but, but I did. And, And so all these years later, even now, when I'm out running and walking, hiking in the mountains, I don't at all take it for granted because I saw how quickly Mm. 
my hero's ability to walk was taken from him. And so I, I do always think about my grandfather couldn't walk anymore. So I'm going to run for both of us. Mm. That's powerful, man. And I've, I mean, I've listened to you for about a year and a half, I think, or two years, maybe, however, I think it was about a year and a half, two years, and I've never heard that story. And that's powerful, man. So I appreciate, I appreciate you sharing that. What, I mean, I, maybe you, this is too hard of a, a question to answer because like you said, you, you don't hear a story where 13, 14 years old, you're, you're kind of pretty much the caretaker for your father, your grandfather doing the things that you did. But obviously he had such an impact on your life, even in, even in a short period of time, 13 years. Um, You know, what, what kind of, could you, could you talk about what maybe have compelled you to, to make that sacrifice at that young of age? When I was a, uh, even younger boy, we went out for ice cream every single night. It didn't matter if there was a blizzard or a hurricane. You know how the weather is in the Northeast. Mm-hmm. It didn't matter. The weather didn't matter. Like we went out for ice cream and sometimes we'd go to Toys R Us and we'd never miss. And I would go on road trips with him to Ohio or, or Scranton, Pennsylvania, if you will, mm. to visit to visit family. And we'd still always go out for ice cream. It didn't matter where we were. It was something we we always did, and I I must have been five or six years old, and I I looked at him and I and I told him that someday I'm going to pay you back for all this ice cream, mm. and and he chuckled, and so you know I I was also very much abused um, as a child. I was physically, emotionally, and mentally abused by my mother, and I was also sexually abused by my older brother uh, at age eight. And I realize now, you know, only I didn't realize this until very recently, Michael, that the reason my grandfather kept me with him as much as he did was to protect me. Mm. And so he really was my protector. He was my hero, my care, my caretaker. And so when he needed me, the, you know, I, I, I very vividly remember it was his birthday and my birthday is a month later. And he asked me what, it, what I wanted for my birthday. And I said, I want you to come home for good. And our, you know, my mom and her brother, they pushed him all around the house in his wheelchair. And they're like yelling at him. How, how you know, your bedroom's upstairs, Mike. How are you going to climb the stairs and go to bed? Come on, get up out of your chair. Let's go, Mike. Get up. Come on, climb up the stairs, Mike. Oh, that's where the bathroom is too. You're going to take a shit, Mike? Come on, climb up the stairs. And I was just it was the most humiliating and degrading thing I've ever seen children do to their parent. And finally somebody yelled, who's going to take care of you? And I stood right up and said, I will. And my grandfather looked at me with this, you know, this smirk that he had. I, I have it too. Uh, <laughs> and this little, you know, sparkle in the eye. And he was like, yeah, John will. And so we came up with a plan and it was, you know, we'll, we'll put a a bed down here in the living room that also doubles as a couch and you can sleep there and we'll put a bar on the wall and we'll have a commode and you can go to the bathroom down here and we know contractors and we can build a ramp to get you in and out of the house. And this isn't impossible. It's, you know, we can have the visiting nurses association come and, and help and, and this is the conversation I'm having with my family at 13 years old. Mm. Like, 
hey, quit being dicks. You guys are just this life of what you can't do, what you shouldn't do, and what you won't do, and what you couldn't do. What about what we can do? And, and that, to me, like this moment became this, the huge catalyst for everything I do in my life. How many people do we know who are constantly telling us you, you can't, shouldn't, won't, or couldn't? And, and what if we just kept the people in our lives who told us, absolutely, how can I help? Mm. Mm. I, do, I do believe you can do that. I, I do believe that's possible. Where do I sign up to give you a hand? Like that's, and that's the culture I'm trying to build with HPRS, especially through our volunteerism, our volunteerism efforts is, hey guys, it's not just about you. Like these people help you with your races. Now you've got to come and help others. That's how this works. That's how community works. It doesn't happen without a village. So let's build a village. And it, it is, it's become such a huge part of my life. And, and I, I, I can't even begin to tell you how many days of the week I think back to that story and all that I did with my grandfather to help him live a fulfilling life before I had to go to college uh, and fail out. But, <laughs> um, you know, I, it was, it had such a profound impact on me. It's not something I, I regret, but it's not something I would ever do again either. Okay. That's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause that's, I mean, that's, that's tough for, listen, that's, that's a tough situation for grown adults that train to do that. Um, let alone a 13, 14 year old kid. Yeah. So that's very, yeah, it is. That's powerful, <laughs> man. Thanks for, thanks for sharing it. That's, that's definitely being vulnerable and that's kind of what I, I want this show to continue to be about. Cause that's helped me through my journey through the years, just to again, help cleanse and help clear my head and help heal. So I appreciate you sharing that. Well, you know, I asked so many people on my show to be vulnerable, open and honest to figure it's time that I do the same. Good. So you know, I appreciate you asking the question. I'm, I'm trying. So that's, the volunteering thing we're so back to because I, I I did want to I had a a, a question about that, uh, but let's kind of let's go back if we can chronologically because you move you moved west before you started HPRS correct that's right so what yes. what what prompted you to get to get out to the west. <laughs> so when I was in the uh, outdoor education program at UNH. Before I joined that program, I actually went to Colorado for a wedding and fell in love with the place. I worked at an ABC news station at the time in New Hampshire during an election cycle. Uh, definitely the most soul-sucking thing I've ever done in my <laughs> life. But um, yeah, as soon as I left Colorado, I went home. I was a freelancer and had the big salary job interview at the news station. And the producer asked me if there was anything I felt would prevent me from getting the job. And I said, yeah, I don't want to work weekends. And he's like, well, why not? And I was like, well, I like to go to the mountains. That's really important to me. He's like, well, the news is 24-7. So I need you to hear me that this job is yours. I really like you. I'm giving you this job, but not if you answer like that. So I'm going to ask the question again, and I'm going to let you answer accordingly. And just know that you're, you getting this job depends on your answer. And so he asked the question again, and I sat there quietly for a few minutes, and then I looked at him, and I said, yeah, I don't want to work weekends. 
And I sabotaged the job interview and I never worked at the news station again. And a year later, I was at UNH working on my degree in outdoor ed and knew that my goal was to graduate and move to Colorado and live there and work outside. Um, that's all that I knew. And so I actually moved to Colorado in 2011 and I, I had an internship in Boulder, Colorado, working as a professional guide for a guide company out of Boulder. And I took people hiking and rock climbing and snowshoeing and mountain biking and sightseeing and rafting. And I also uh, became the company's operations manager and completely redesigned their corporate team building experiences and facilitated a lot of corporate adventure training for Fortune 500 and Fortune 100 companies. Hmm. Um, and I'm one of 12 people that in that year, that, you know, a couple of years there that had a permit to guide people professionally in Rocky Mountain National Park. So really big highlight of my life, but also realized every other guide I knew lived in their truck, was single, didn't have a house. <laughs> and I was like, oh, but that's not the life I want to live. Like I actually do want a house. I want to have a wife and kids. And, and so I left guiding uh, and started trying to figure out my direction again. Like, what do I do now? And I, uh, HPRS prior to it being an official race series was my fat ass series. And a, you know, a fat ass is a glorified group run typically known as no fees, no awards, no aid, no whining. And they're low key fun events. People show up and run together, but my fat asses were averaging a hundred runners per fat ass mm. and they got so popular and so well attended that I actually had a group of friends throw me an intervention where they sat me down in the middle of a room. And instead of trying to convince me to stop doing something like drinking or some bad habit, somebody might have, they actually convinced me to start a race company and be a full-time race director. And I actually fought against them very hard. Hmm. And all I, I, and the discussion was all over the place from, I, I actually had a, an ethical and moral dilemma that I didn't think it was ethically right for people to make money off of race directing. Because traditionally, ultras were done for the purposes of raising money for nonprofits. And like ultra running just wasn't a business yet. It, it, it just wasn't quite a business yet. Um, in my mind, but in the mind of Lifetime Fitness and, and some other brands, it very much was a business and it could be a way that you make money. And it took me a while to really see that. Uh, and I kind of figured that out while feeling my way through the early stages of, of creating HPRS. Uh, it took you a while to see it. What, what do you think got you to the point where you accepted it and said, okay, yeah, this is a, this is a business and it's a business that I want to be in. Should I still have the piece of paper? Uh, I sat down with a, with a, a businessman friend uh, who became kind of a mentor for me in the early stages of HPRS. We went out for breakfast one morning and he made me write down on a piece of paper. My name is John LaCroix. I own a business. Human potential running series is a business. I will succeed. I must treat it like a business. And I signed my name at the bottom of the paper. And to this day, every March 14th, 
I look at that piece of paper because that's the birthday of HPRS and remember that I am a business owner. I own a business. This is not a hobby. This is how I make a living. Hmm. One of the, one of the words that I, I really don't like is success. The word success, because a lot of people define it in so many ways. Uh, most people, I shouldn't say that, but a lot of people out there define it as money, power, fame, whatever the case may be. Uh, I, I have a hunch that your view of success uh, is different. I mean, in my view of you and HPRS, I believe you are doing what you meant to do. I mean, granted, I only experienced one race. I, I, I paced Brian in another race and the culture that you built um, and what you're trying to do and what you have done over the years I believe you're doing exactly what it is you should be doing and what you intended to do with quote unquote, making this a business. Is that accurate, John? Yeah. You know, I've learned over the the last six years that this is my calling. This is, this is indeed what I've meant been meant to do and I'm not perfect at it. I'm not a perfect human. I'm not a perfect business owner. I make a lot of mistakes. I make a lot of mistakes in my dealing with people. That's for sure. Um, but at the end of the day, success for me is not measured by how much money is in my bank account or how much money I've got squirreled away for retirement. I could give a shit about money. I look at money as a made-up thing. Like, what is a dollar worth, really? Well, it's a dollar. Yeah, but if you go to Canada, it's a it's a dollar eight, or right? It's like, or it's, or it's ninety nine cents. Like, so is it worth a dollar? And who decides what it's worth? And if you collect more of those little slips of paper, does that really make you more successful than the next guy? I don't believe it does. I think success is very different for everybody, as you just said. And for me, success is helping other people realize what they're capable of, helping people through their struggles, hearing them, meeting them where they are. And what's, you know, the, the biggest thing, what's become a, a huge passion of mine is, is, is the understanding that humans are looking for three things. And, and, and these are the only three things you look for in your whole life, Michael, that is to love, to receive love, and to belong. And so I've made it my personal mission to create a place where people feel love, where they can give love, and where they belong that's success to me. And so I, I do view myself as a very successful business owner. I am not a failure. I've, you know, I've, I've owned this business for six years. I'm solvent. I don't have, you know, I don't have any debt. I, I have, we're in the middle of a pandemic and, and, and we're on track to be the only major race series in North America that hosts every single one of their races in 2020 zero cancellations. We are in a great position. We're doing very well. I'm really proud of that. And, and it comes down to the community we've built. And so I, I can look and see the community that we have around us, the people that are helping out, the people that are running, who's here, who's the regulars, all of it. And, and as I, I look at those things, I can see it's because of this community that we've built that this is successful and the success of this brand is its community. So if you take it all into account, and, and yeah, we're there. 
I, I don't need to be Leadville or Spartan races to think that we've made it. Mm. Uh, Cause the bottom line doesn't matter here. The people do. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I, I think that's rightfully said. I mean, again, I experienced one race and I experienced some of the community and um, I wish I lived closer because it's, it's, it is a special community. You've done a great job. You and your team have done a great job. So we appreciate, we being the community that has, has been able to run during this pandemic appreciates it. So thank you. Um, well, I, I have two questions. One is what, you know, you, cause you just expanded into Arkansas last year, I think, right. That was your first Arkansas race. Yes. So my, my one question is, you know, what, what's on the horizon do you see? And the other question is why fair play? What got you there? <laughs> Well, let me start with the fair play question, actually. Um, and I love fair play, just to be, just to be clear. <laughs> you know, one of the big reasons I started my series, I'm not going to be sh- bashful or shy about this, is, uh, is to, to say fuck you to Leadville. Mm. Um, what they did and, uh, you know, man, I, I could go on a whole episode about that, but I, I really feel that the folks up in Leadville are very disingenuine. I think family and community is a catchphrase and the bottom line really is what matters up there. And it was such when it happened, when Lifetime Fitness bought Leadville and turned it into a corporate machine it, at the time, like, you know, 2010, such the antithesis of the, what this sport was built upon. It wasn't anything any of us had ever seen before. Every race had been privately owned and run until now like this was the first time a corporation had dipped their toes into the water of race directing in our sport and we and there was a group of us old schoolers that were like fuck this so we hate it sorry if, sorry if i can't swear on your show you can uh, bleep it out no worries you're fine you're <laughs> fine um but we were just like you know screw this like this is not our sport and so fair play is literally just over the ridge from leadville there's, uh, that's all that separates the two towns is a ridge, a mountain, that's it. And I got wind from another race director here in Colorado that Fair Play was looking to have a series of races just like Leadville, except on a much smaller scale. And I knew immediately that I was the guy to provide that. Mm. And so it's like literally five minutes after hanging up the phone with that guy, I was already designing the races that are up there. Mm. And then that same race director is like, I've been trying for two years to get a meeting with fair play to discuss this with them. And I had a meeting within 15 minutes was, Hey, I'm John. I'm going to do this. Let's talk. And then I drove to fair play and we talked. I had many meetings driving to fair play. And I, I actually had to spend a, a really unusual amount of time convincing the people of fair play that I am not going to turn it into a Leadville that I'm not going to turn the race series into a Leadville. Mm. In fact, I made a promise that we would keep it low key and, you know, you won't even know that we're here. <laughs> um, and, and so really that, that's a huge part of the story. Why fair play? Well, I got a tip. I acted on the tip and it was the best way I could think to say, screw you to Leadville by just putting up races literally across the mountain from them. Um, 
And you know, that, that actually earned me a lot of enemies in Colorado because how dare I have any opinion other than Leadville is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Whew, man, that whole abstract thought and thinking for yourself is hard to do. Um, but yeah, so now we've, we've got a series of 10 events that span the entire calendar year. One of those events is in Arkansas. Uh, we held it last year in our first year. We, we were just shy of a sellout, um, which is 200 runners. I, I keep low cap space because um, you guys should research a, a, a theory called Dunbar's number which is a theory that discusses there's a, there's a certain number of people that you can have within your community. And once you go over that number, you lose the ability to connect. Mm. And so I keep my number low so that people can connect. And it's a very old school, traditional ultra running. Um, but what's on the horizon? Uh, you know, I, I've been working on plans to continue to expand for the last two years. I've looked at California, I've looked in Washington, I've looked in Oregon, I've looked in Wyoming, and I've looked in New Mexico. And those are the, those are the places that I'm, I've been looking to, to put a new race up in. And then COVID-19 happened. Mm. And so right now I'm kind of in this holding pattern to see what races survive this. I think ultimately I know there's a bunch of race directors who've already walked away. They're just like, screw this, I'm retired. I'm not race directing anymore job got way too hard overnight it's not worth it um i think we're gonna see a lot of that and i think they're you know we don't know what races are coming back in 2021 and or if they'll be back in 2022 so is it a situation where i'm gonna pick up the ball for somebody else and and keep going forward with their race uh, that they started and and we just kind of bring it into hprs and put it under our portfolio uh, or am I going to start a new race somewhere? And, and those are the big decisions that I'm faced. And we're just not in a world right now where I can, I can clearly see that direction just yet. Um, you know, so, so we're kind of in this holding pattern, waiting to see what we hear through the grapevine and, and maybe, if, you know, if there's races available. And if not, I've got a couple of really cool ideas up my sleeve. I just need to find the right place to do it. Mm. Cool. That's interesting. Yeah. I didn't even think about the concept of uh, acquiring other races considering, I mean, but obviously it's realistic considering everything that's going on right now. Yeah. I mean, I just see that there's going to be a big opportunity here within the next year of just how many race directors want to bail, but they don't want it to be all for naught. And so they're willing to sell their, their race off to, to somebody else. The, the problem is, so many people got into race directing thinking it was a get rich quick thing and it's not, <laughs> it's definitely not. And other people believe that just because Leadville sold for $2 million or, you know, there were a couple of races down in Texas a few years ago that sold for a million dollars that now their race is worth a million dollars. It's like, no, those races have been going on for, for over 20 years before they sold like, and you're not selling your, your race, you're selling your brand. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of these RDs, they don't even realize that the, the brand that they built, it's either worth something or it's really not. And so I'm also going uh, to see, I foresee a situation where some of these race directors, they, they want to sell their, their race that they built for a couple hundred grand when it's only worth 10 grand. 
Um, so I, I think there's going to be a big splash of reality coming down the pike here for, for a lot of people. Mm. What uh, transition a little bit, what, why the podcast, what got you into the podcast? Was that an other way to reach the people and potentially build your brand too? Uh, the podcast I started um, because I'm so tired of hearing from the front runners. I, I felt like every single interview is with Carl Meltzer. Every single interview is with Anton Kropichka. Every single email uh, interview is with Scott Jurek. I don't really care what those guys do. Like, they're not me. They don't race like me. They don't understand my world. Uh, they, they really don't. Like, do you think Anton understands what it's like to be an ultra marathon runner when you have a wife and three kids mm. and, and, a, and a, a house and – you know, he made a decision to live in his van down by the river or whatever and, and be a run bum. Like, <laughs> so like, like we're listening to these guys and, and just you hear the same story and the same questions on repeat. And it's just there's so much more to this sport than that. And there's so many people with a story that deserves to be told that that's what I wanted to do. And so I created Ultra Stories as a way for the every everyday man and woman to be able to tell their story, uh, how they got into running and what it is for them and what it means to them and talk about some of their adventures and really get into the deep thoughts of what the hell is it that we're actually doing out here, what matters and what doesn't. And so you know, that was the main focus of creating the, the podcast. But I, I'll be honest in telling you, of, of course, it's also uh, advertising for HPRS. It's also an opportunity for me to have a voice in a way that people can hear me. And so you can hear my voice, you can hear my tone, you can hear my inflection. Um, and you're not just reading words on a screen where you attach your own emotion to mm. it. Um, I, and people do that a lot, right? They, they read somebody's internet blog post and they're like, oh, this fucking asshole. Can you believe what he just said? Well, you're reading it wrong. That's not how they intended it. Mm. And so the podcast really gives me an opportunity to continue to have a voice in our sport with the hopes that I can continue to, to help guide the direction of ultra running in some small way by, by being vocal and, and sharing my thoughts on any number of things. And they're not always popular. I'll tell you that. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, depending on your talk or two, absolutely. But one, one thing yeah. I think you left out in, 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 when, when we get to hear your voice, there's a lot of passion and the passion is not only with the sport, it's not only with uh, HPRS, it's, it's with a, a number of different things. And one of the things I wanted to circle back to is that volunteering component, which as you, as you said, you spent a good portion of your childhood volunteering or taking care of your grandfather. So is that kind of the, the, the correlation there that, that it is you volunteer so much or you, 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 uh, you preach to preach the volunteering aspect of HPRS of ultra running. Has it, is that the correlation because of the experience you had with your grandfather? I actually had never thought of that, Michael. Um, it's a really good point. I don't think it's wrong. It's just not something I've ever thought of. For me, it was more when I got into ultra running, I had a number of old school ultra runners take me under their wing up in New Hampshire and Massachusetts and Maine and Vermont. And they all taught me the importance of community and how important giving back is 
and the sport doesn't happen unless you give back. And I really took that to heart. In fact, the first ultra distance run I ever completed was a fat ass that I created. And I invited other people from my community to come and run with me. And they did. Um, And then in 2007, I found myself helping out with a series of races in Vermont called Peak Races. Uh, In fact, the idea to to start a new race there called the Death Race was was actually came out of an email that I wrote to a guy named, or I'll just say Joe and Andy, who started Spartan Races. And Spartan Races was born out of the Death Race. And so what we were doing in Vermont at Peak Races was building community. And we spent an awful lot of time making sure that we were attracting the right runner to our events, not every runner, but the right runners to craft this community that we wanted to build. And a huge part of that was you've got to volunteer, you've got to give back. And so I was a race director apprentice doing whatever needed to be done for Peak Races. Um, learning everything I could about how to put on a race. Uh, And then ultimately I directed the first 200 miler in the world in November, 2008 in Pittsfield, Vermont. It was called the new England ultras 200. We had five starters, one finisher. (laughs) And uh, to see what the 200 miler has become since is, is really cool. But, but I'll tell you that that first 200 miler lacked community. And it taught me a big lesson on how hugely important community is in this sport. And if you don't have one to support you, your races just are not going to succeed on the level that they deserve to. Um, And so that's really what's driven me is, is the lessons I've learned along the way from countless other ultra runners, but also firsthand experience helping build other communities. Very cool, man. So I want to be respectful of your time. Um, I, I typically have three questions I end with, but I think you already addressed the one question, and that was something most don't know about you. Uh, I think the pro wrestling situation, going to pro wrestling school might be might be probably the one, but if there's something you want to expand on it, go right ahead. No, that's it, man. Uh, I went to professional wrestling school. I had a dream of being a WWE wrestler. And I didn't make it, but my best friend did. Did you did you have a character in mind for yourself? I did. His name was Solid. <laughs> I'm I'm Solid, you know. And uh, uh, yeah, I was a heel. I was a bad guy. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, can I can I ask who the character is that would we know the character that is your friend right now that's in WWE? If you watch wrestling, his name is Ivar. He's one half of the Viking Raiders. Okay, that's pretty cool. On, on Monday Night Raw. Yeah. And this is a high school friend. <laughs> yeah, he's my. Yeah, yeah, it, my best friend from high school. Yeah, that's that's who it is. We we went through some shit together. His his mom, his mom left the earth too soon when we were in high school, and uh, his dream was always to be a professional wrestler. And I really believed in him, and and told him we'd, we'd do whatever we could to help him achieve that dream and and I, I continue to support that dream and, and I'm so very proud of him and excited that he gets to do what he's always wanted to do his whole life that's awesome that's really cool. yeah that is really cool um the other question and this kind of came on with all the shit going down with COVID 
you know, indulgence. Has there been an indulgence that you've been taking part in more than usual during the, the COVID? Gardening. Gardening. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's something that people also don't know about me actually is um, people always ask me, what do you do when you're not running? Uh, the answer is gardening. I love gardening. I, I take a, a lot of pride in my lawn more than I probably should. Uh, the lines need to be perfect. Uh, I mow twice a week. Uh, <laughs> but right now I'm growing giant pumpkins. Okay. And I have a giant pumpkin that's 50 inches in circumference with a month to go. And uh, it's my first time trying to grow a giant pumpkin. And I've learned a lot. And my hope is that I can grow a giant pumpkin big enough to bring to the Great Pumpkin Regatta, which is in Oregon every October. It's where people who grew giant pumpkins so big that you can sit in the pumpkin and use it as a boat. And I'm not lying. This is not a joke. I want to bring a giant pumpkin to this regatta. And so I'm, I'm learning how to grow giant pumpkins so that I can row a pumpkin across some Oregon lake. Okay, so <laughs> this probably wouldn't be something you'd partake in this year, correct? No, I, my pumpkin is not big enough this year. We're not even close. Okay, so um, what will you be doing with this ginormous pumpkin? Uh, we, uh, we do this thing at HPRS every once in a while where we, we hide a rock out on the course. <laughs> the rocks are usually pretty heavy, and if you carry that rock to the finish line, I'll give you a couple hundred dollars cash right there. And uh, so I think that I'm going to bring these pumpkins to the Indian Creek 50s and anybody who brings a pumpkin to the finish line will win some cash. And we all know how incredibly awkward it is to carry a pumpkin to begin with, never mind one that weighs 100 pounds. Why you're running an ultra marathon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm my plan is to bring these pumpkins to the race so that they can be carried across for cash. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. Uh <laughs> The last question, and then I'll let you go, man. Really appreciate the time. Um, but uh, what what makes you come alive? Wow, what a hard question. What makes me come alive? I don't know. I mean, could I ask? Can I ask a friend? Sure. I'm going to ask my assistant race director, Emily Royal. Um, we're actually on a road trip right now. We're heading to Glacier National Park. Oh, awesome. And uh, so I'm going to ask her this question, and then hopefully she'll be able to help. Emily, what is it that makes me come alive? It's a really hard question. Like, what, may, what do you see that makes me light up the most? Coca-Cola. <laughs> Coca-Cola. <laughs> <laughs> and pizza. That's fair. What's that? Giant pumpkins. Yeah, we were just talking about that. So, yeah, I, I, I'm a simple man. I, you know, we, we joke a lot that I'm, I'm kind of a dirtbag. I, I live a life where I, I really just, I'm the, I'm the big Lebowski. <laughs> like, whatever, man. Um, and so for me, I, I just think the, the opportunity to, just maybe sit around the campfire with my friends and, and obviously I have a cold Coca-Cola in my hand while that's happening. Uh, Cause I don't really drink. I'm not, I'm not much for alcohol, but sitting around a fire, hanging out with friends, uh, enjoying time together, talking about life, life's mysteries, politics, whatever. 
uh, it actually really brings me immense joy uh, to, to be able to have that quality time with people. And so I, I think the answer really is quality time. That's what lights me up. The, the more quality time I can have one-on-one or in small groups with people really satisfies me greatly um, in ways that few other things do. So, uh, you know, that's, that's probably my answer. But thank you, Em. I appreciate the uh, suggestions, Coca-Cola and pumpkins. Well, John, I, I appreciate the time, man. And I think, uh, I, I think there's a lot of great things you're doing with, with HPRS and in the community and just in life in general. You know, you made a connection with me and I've, I've, I'm grateful for that friendship uh, that hopefully grows over time and definitely appreciate your time today, especially, uh, especially as you're heading out for some R&R. Yeah, man. No, I, uh, I appreciate you so much. You know, great show. I listen to you also. Uh, you know, I'd love to have you on my podcast as well. I hope we can make that happen. If anybody wants to learn more about the Human Potential Running series, my website is humanpotentialrunning.com. We'd love to have you. Don't be shy. Just bring your grit with you. Absolutely, man. Yeah, definitely be, be honored to be on the show. And I'll, uh, I'll tag a bunch of stuff, obviously, the websites and some other things in the show notes. But appreciate the time, buddy. You, uh, you have a great trip up there and, and stay safe, okay? Thank you, Michael. I appreciate your time and for having me on. All right, buddy. Be well. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye.